Police clashed in Harlem with members of the militant group calling itself the People's Militia, who were intent on setting the neighborhood aflame, until the leader of the People's Militia was unmasked as Nazi war criminal the Red Skull. American news media is also reporting that a helicopter carrying the masked vigilante known as Daredevil, and the reputed crime lord, the Owl has crashed. There are, as yet, no known survivors. In San Francisco's Haight-Ashbury district, the mutant terrorist Magneto has clashed with the mysterious group of superpowered entities known as the Inhumans. And a tragedy has been narrowly averted in Boston, where a group of teenagers attending an outdoor rock festival suddenly found themselves aged decades, by the followers of Tuval the Mind Master. Until, minutes later, they regained their true ages again. This is Doombot DA12 for the VOL. Zero, two, seven. This is the voice of Latveria. Zero, two, seven. Here in Latveria, we get news from all over the world. The news may be good or bad, but we will always tell you the truth as Lord Doom sees it. Every week on the Voice of Latveria, we examine Marvel Comics history through the career of its greatest hero, Dr. Victor Von Doom. And now, here's your host, Douglas Walk, the man who has read every Marvel superhero comic book, and lived to tell us all about it. Thank you so much, Doombot MM20. Hope everybody enjoyed our week off. Uh, our guest this week is Bob Calhoun, the author of the book The Murders That Made Us, How Vigilantes, Hoodlums, Mob Bosses, Serial killers and cult leaders built the San Francisco Bay Area. What we're looking at today is a kind of turning point for Doom and for Marvel. It's Fantastic Four number 116 from 1971. And the interesting thing about this one is that it's the first issue of Fantastic Four that Stan Lee didn't write at all and Jack Kirby didn't draw at all. It is the first issue without either of them involved with it. And on the cover, Doom is leading the Fantastic Four, and it seems like kind of a sideways way of saying, yeah, the people who are supposed to be running the show are not here. And on top of that, it's like a double-size issue. It's a 25-cent issue in a 15-cent uh, comic world, right? Uh, yeah, so... Well, that was, the one month, that was the one month that it wasn't a 15-cent comic world anymore. For that month only, Marvel's comics made the jump from 15 cents, 32 pages, to 48 pages, 25 cents. So they all went double-sized. Some of them padded it out with reprints. Some of them you know, stuck an extra-length story in there. And there's an announcement in the bullpen bulletins that month that this is the new thing that we're going to be doing going forward. It lasted only that month. The next month, they were back to 32 pages, and now they were 20 cents. Yeah, you know, and uh, probably because John Basema and John Ramita's arms were falling off. I mean, if they were going to crank out that <laughs> much, because DC was just doing like a regular size comic with uh, reprints. You know, they were padding right. out their 25 cent comics with reprints. So Marvel was giving you all original material. So it'd be like putting out a Fantastic Four annual every month. And and then with the workhorse like Jack gone, like, you know, it was all falling on the Basemas and Ramita and maybe a little bit on Gene Colan, who already were cranking out a lot of material. 
So, so to double production, I just don't think it was physically possible for those guys. Yeah. I think it was probably more a business decision than a creative decision, but it definitely taxed everybody to the limit. And the next month, everything went back to normal size. And so there's a lot of comics from the following month that were clearly supposed to be longer and then got cut down or cut in half, or it was just a messy, messy moment. And, you know, that was also the first month that Stan Lee was no longer writing monthly comics. He took a few months off. And so suddenly there's no Stan. Suddenly everybody else has to pump out that much more. And it's real confusing. Yeah. And although Ar- Archie Goodwin is, is uh, it is Archie Goodwin, correct? In this, um, it's a very yeah, it's Stan. Archie Goodwin doing his best. Yeah, the stand impression is still there. You know, I remember I asked Steve Lealoha once if he ever had a nickname, like a Marvel bullpen nickname. And he goes, you know, I think I was surfing Steve for a minute, but I mean, Stan was already (laughs) gone by the time I started inking Warlock and Howard the Duck. It was, I never got, I never really got one of those. So, uh, but yeah, (laughs) yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it is like, it is funny to me too because I took a note while I was rereading it, rereading uh, this Fantastic Four, and Doom doesn't show up until like page eighteen, which is when like a normal comic would be, you know, all, almost all the way over. And you know, so it's like I, I kind of was reading it, wondering if Doom shouldn't have maybe showed up at the because the Overmind thing that this caps off, it's like a four issue run. Yeah, it's a long, long story. I mean, it's a long serial that that culminates in this. And Doom just shows up in the second half of the final part. And it really reads like this was originally supposed to be two issues. And then suddenly, oh, we're doing extra length stories. All right, fine. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's, I mean, my first impression of it was that maybe Basema's art was a bit rushed. And then I looked at it again today. And it's amazing how much detail him and Senate pack into each panel despite yeah. like having to produce, I mean, the, the fantastic four back then, I, I think kids now that the MCU doesn't really have the fantastic four as a component. They only relate, they relate to how important something is through its, its Disney movie imprint and fantastic four hasn't really had a good movie run in the 21st century, but it is the flagship of the fleet back then. And all the big ideas that bind the Marvel universe. And I'm, I'm coming in way too late in this podcast history to be saying this probably come from, come from fantastic four. So they probably put in, in that period of time, they put a little more effort into the FF. I'd imagine FF and Spider-Man are like the top books and you, you don't want to let them falter. Yeah. What's interesting is that fantastic four always feels like it's the flagship Marvel book, at least while Kirby's still there. And Spider-Man is outselling it from from the moment where we have sales figures. Like, Spider-Man is the one that really, really sold. But Fantastic Four is the one where people's hearts were. Yeah, yeah. And it's the intellectual underpinning of the Marvel Universe um, through even maybe John Byrne. You know, it's, uh, you know, X-Men and Avengers and, and any other book can touch on high concepts once in a while, but Fantastic Four is where they spring from. The Negative Zone, Galactus, The Watcher, all of that stuff is from that. And it's always funny, too, that 
that when Reed goes bad, it's the only time you see how powerful he really is. He's like a kind of low level power wise figure, but then anytime Reed goes bad, all of a sudden he's, he's able to stretch in all these different directions and hit you with incredible force. And he's impossible to get rid of. It's like evil Reed is all of a sudden like this total badass, powerful Marvel figure that he isn't when he's just kind of mild mannered, you know, scientist Reed. Agatha Harkness makes an appearance in this. Mm-hmm. And she's the one who tells Sue to, to stop with the prejudices and just reach out to Doom, which I kind of wonder. Uh, I'm not sure if it was ever, ever developed, but, you know, Agatha and Doom kind of share this common Euro magic kind of lineage and witchcraft that yeah. I wonder if there's not more of a connection there that was ever explored. Huh. Yeah, not so much, you'd think, but no. Yeah, it's just this throwaway thing, but it got me thinking in all these directions, you know, it's like, wow, maybe Agatha and Doom, like their families are kind of conjoined somehow and they have this shared history. I Did they ever really develop Agatha Harkness? I mean, you almost think they should have like an occult series where it's her battling Sumerian demons and things. There is some interesting stuff about her in uh, the Vision series that Tom King did a few years ago. Really, I should I should pick that up then. Yeah, you know, it's real solid. Yeah, I was like, well, and I mean, you know, there's that whole yeah, I can I can see Vision because of because of Scarlet Witch and Wondegore and that whole right. kind of John Byrne era Avengers yep, thing yep. going on. At this point, Fantastic Four has been Lee and Kirby up until like a year before this, and that is the way to do it. It's you know, it's John Buscema and Archie Goodwin. And they're trying so hard to be like Lee and Kirby. These characters don't really have any existence outside of that aesthetic yet. Yeah, they kind of, well, Sinnott is inking like uh, FF for such a long time. And he's like the continuity of it. Right. Like George Perez, it's like, I think, like, I love Sinnott's inks, but I kind of felt George Perez, you know, when when Austin would ink him later in the Avengers. That they aren't like it's almost like Sinnott's got an or standing order to keep it like keep the FF looking like Kirby FF, even with all these yeah. wildly different artists doing it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and even up to the point when you know he does a few issues with John Byrne, and suddenly it's got the look of Fantastic Four as we know it. I talk to Mike Royer sometimes, and it's he kind of likens everything to old movie studios. And he said that Joe Sinnott was MGM, and <laughs> he, Mike Royer, was Warner Brothers. Huh? Okay. Like, like talking about like basically '40s style, '40s Warner Brothers and '40s MGM. Like that was his. Uh, that was that's his take on it, you know, and uh, just the way he says things, but. I just keep on going back to the prisoner thing. I, I, Royer was showing me, he did a commission. Somebody commissioned him to take those Kirby pencils, like photocopies of them and ink over them. And Royer was talking about it. He was showing me the pages and they look great. And he was talking about like even things he kind of fixed because, you know, it wasn't like a fit. He had to make a value judgment without Jack there to like confer with that, you know, their pencils, they aren't, they weren't, they aren't necessarily really tight pencils and he never inked it back then. But then he said, you know, inking a new God's page is 
you know, you it's everybody's in this armor and this kind of these kind of spacesuits and things. It's way easier. And it's like it takes me so long to ink all these like folds in everybody's clothes and wrinkles in their shirts and everything. <laughs> and they've got pockets in their in their dress shirts. It's just kind of a funny observation. But uh I'm going well, I am going tangential. You told me to go tangential here and uh please. But yeah, please, please. But yeah, what what about Doom in this? I mean, he comes in, he's kind of a, a sour Doom. One thing I was thinking of too is that you have these noble villains in Marvel and they usually are Doom and Magneto. And I think part of the reason that they can be that and like Magneto is a little more noble than Doom. Like he's kind of he's kind of an oppressed minority as a mutant. And you can see his point where Doom is, uh, he is this dictator. He is this, this totalitarian, really. Um, I mean, he's hideously scarred, but a lot of the reasons he is is because of his immense ego. And, and he kind of messes things up for himself. But I think Doom and Magneto's anti-Nazi bona fides are what makes them palatable as 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 the noble hero or the the or the noble villain or the villain that the heroes that the ff can team up with once in a while and i'm like thank god don't tell please don't tell me if they've done this more recently i don't want to know but thank god they never did that with the red skull doom's anti-nazi bonafides are are well established which makes you okay sue can reach out to him it makes it yeah. it makes it almost okay in a way that like yeah the, there's just some villains like like with the um with the the Marvel TV shows and the Marvel Universe stuff like you know Euro Trash Baron Zemo is okay to kind of be a villain you root for but if he was old Nazi Baron Zemo with the purple the purple uh um the purple face mask that's permanently bonded to his face there's no way you could root for that guy ever there's no way he's ever sympathetic or or enjoyable as a villain he joins forces with the fantastic four because he realizes that the overmind is a threat to him he's never really explicit about why it's happening it just kind of happens the storyline seems a bit rushed. They kind yeah. of fall on the crutch of, of like, oh, Sue is, you know, Sue is nobly reaching out to me. So I guess I'll go along with this. <laughs> but it also, in 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 that, it's like you wish Doom was brought in ten pages earlier that right. they that they paced it a little better, because it's also Doom sees it as a challenge that you know for a second he thinks, oh, I want to show. Richards in the world that I can run this outfit just as well as he can. It's like right. he sees it as a resume piece that, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> that, he, that he's, you know, that Richards will always have on him if he doesn't do this. That, yeah, that makes sense. Um, meanwhile, Reed is, as you say, like crazy but very effective Reed. Uh, and the Overmind is involved, and the stranger shows up four pages before the end to just be another gigantic force and be the one who actually defeats the overmind. Yeah. That's one of those, those disappointing endings. I mean, <laughs> I'm as disappointed as Ben and Johnny are with that. And I, I recently bought a Marvel treasury edition of the Mangog saga and Thor. Okay. And oh, it's wow. a beautiful read. 
Um, it was wonderful to, to just sit there and read that on a Saturday afternoon. And, but it's another one of those, like, Oh, uh, you know, some cosmic force makes man God go away. And it's, it's, I mean, that's Lee and Kirby at their best and it's still one of the best Thor stories, but it's, it's always a little disappointing when, you know, cosmic being, you know, with being X with infinite cosmic powers shows up and saves the day. It's like you, you want doom, you know, it goes, it goes into like the pacing of the issue again. Like you want, like, why can't Doom somehow free read and then together they can come up with a way to defeat the Overmind? That would have been so much more satisfying than Uatu showing up and yeah. explaining, well, if you guys didn't, didn't sock it to, uh, sock it to the Overmind, then even the stranger couldn't have defeated him. So feel good about yourselves. Cause even if that's true, it sounds like a line. What do any of these characters get to be now that Lee and Kirby are gone? It takes a while before anybody can answer that. Yeah, yeah there's some so, wandering in the wilderness, like the Rich Buckler issues. I, I, I I'm not not gonna gonna go over the the anti Rich Buckler screeds in this. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about the <laughs> storytelling. And no offense to Mr. Conway, your guest from last week or anything, but yeah, there's a lot of kind of like the FF is this kind of old war horse, really early on, like. 12 years later, 15 years later, it's like you, it, it's the book you should take in crazy new directions, but you really can't. It's tough. And I mean, there's still like those issues all through the seventies and into the eighties, there's some fun, fun stories in there and some good stories. And, yeah. you know, going back to one sixteen too, it's like, you know, you got Reed there and he's crazy Reed and he's, he's going to kill Sue and, and he doesn't care because he's under complete control of the overmind, but you've got doom there. So you're like, wow, they could have, if they paced it better, they could have had doom and Reed fight a little bit and read evil doom and evil, you know, evil Reed fighting or good read and evil doom, like, like the deficit there. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot of things like they just kind of leave on the table in that. And I think Marvel, like at that time too, they start to get, they, they, they were constrained by rack space for so long that they start yeah. to get a bigger chunk of the distribution, which, which I mean, that's when I grew up reading Marvel and that's the Marvel to me, you know, the Marvel with son of Satan and the ghost Rider and all these crazy yeah. books that I, that I love and I love looking through them. But when you read those sixties, Marvels, the Lee Kirby era stuff, because the Marvel universe is, is, um, finite, it's constrained that they, that it's so much more cohesive. And, you know, team ups and crossovers are just kind of more casual or there's like, you know, Spider-Man zipping around and Thor flies by and it's just this kind of casual thing that doesn't really happen later, you know, and then they even have whole books that are just devoted to team ups, two and one and team up and stuff. But, but yeah, so you start to have the expansion of the, the Marvel characters. There's just going to be more and more Marvel characters and more different flavors of them from here on out too. Here is a question that may not have an answer. Are there any kind of connections between this story and the true crime world that you have a hand in? I don't know. I mean, my book is about San Francisco specifically, and it's the history of San Francisco through crimes. And I think early on in the 1850s through like basically the first 50 years of the Anglo-American San Francisco are some dr dooms out there that the city's kind of run by varying flavors of dr dooms the 
basically these this these kind of people that are looked back upon as as these great civic figures now like the de young family who founded the san francisco chronicle which has been very good to me by the way in its current form but i mean newspaper men newspaper publishers not just reporters but publishers used to shoot it out on market street back then like they would write these kinds of like yellow journalism pieces basically kind of like you know basically insulting the editors of other papers and the second vigilance movement is started over a shooting a shootout between newspaper publishers and and the 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 people who founded the chronicle to two two of the chronicles founders like both of the de young brothers there's a third de young brother that kind of just fades into obscurity but uh both charles and michael de young and um, michael has a museum named after him now the de young museum in san francisco um they all end up uh, laundering their images through museums all these city founders but both of them were shot in the chronicle offices one of them uh, Charles was shot dead and Michael survives to, to start the museum. And he was shot by the family that the Spreckles family ends up running the call. Uh, they buy a newspaper just to, they can't shoot Michael anymore, but they will own a newspaper and try to put him out of business that way. And so there's probably some kind of long winded speechifying by these guys. I imagine much of the way that doom would, would, would give these kind of long winded speeches, these justifying their, their existence and and uh justifying their plans for domination so there's there's these struggles for domination uh, among these very very violent men at all levels of society in san francisco back then and and victor von doom would have would have definitely had his faction even without the armor and the superpowers and the witchcraft he would have he would have risen <laughs> to the top of that very violent world can you Plug the book a little bit, please. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it is The Murders That Made Us. Um, it is, like I said, it's 170 years of San Francisco uh, Bay Area history through its most violent and depraved acts. It's available at most bookstores and the usual online suspects. If you want to learn more about it, you could go to www.murdersthatmadeus.com. All one word, which I don't think I need to say anymore, but yeah, murders that made us.com. Uh, also, um, if you can find it, uh, the ebook is still readily available of Shattering Conventions, which was my previous book where I went to a bunch of different kinds of conventions. That was the book I ended up having to self publish, but I was already in too deep with going to a bunch of conventions <laughs> to stop. So I just, I just stayed the course of it. And I did go to San Diego Comic-Con and it's like from around 2011, came out in 2013. So I went to a Twilight Con, but I also went to a gun show and a Republican convention and a conspiracy con and a couple of different Star Trek cons. And uh, so, yeah, it's it's an exploration of conventions that I, I think definitely there is a lot of comic book and science fiction uh, nerdism in it. But it's a it's a exploration of just you know you know all this convening might be breaking us apart kind of uh, right. was the theme of it and uh, why we gather and what we get out of gathering in this way and these these convention centers and these uh, yeah these you know these these yeah these convention centers and hotel conference rooms and that everybody every every kind of person uh what struck me about the conspiracy con is you had all these people that lived in shacks in the woods 
that were worried about the CIA or aliens tapping their phones, but they still couldn't resist all getting together in this uh, hotel in Mountain View, California to meet all the other people like them. Bob Calhoun, thank you so much again. Next week, Joe Strecker will be joining me to talk about Doom's next meeting with the Submariner. The Voice of Latveria podcast is made possible by the patronage of listeners like you. If you support us through patreon.com slash douglaswolk, you'll get access to our private book club and discussion board for Marvel nerds, the 616 Society. You can find out more about this podcast on our website, voiceoflatveria.com, and follow us on Twitter. This is Douglas Wolk for the VOL. Zero, two, seven. This is the voice of Latveria. Zero, two, seven. Tomorrow, on Where Monsters Dwell, how to tell the difference between Orogo and Orgo. Both were aliens who attempted to hypnotize the entire population of Earth, within mere months of each other, but in other respects, they could not have been much more different. Orogo, O-R-O-G-O, also known as the Thing from Beyond or the Nightmare from Outer Space, was tall, thin and robotic in form, and defeated by the blind old man Albert Carstairs. Orgo, O-R-R-G-O, also known as Orgo the Unconquerable, was squat and wide, and was beaten to death, by Jojo the Gorilla. We'll have further details tomorrow on Where Monsters Dwell, here on the VOL. This concludes our broadcast day. May Doom's terrifying face inspire you to devotedly implement his policies, until you die. (laughs) 